Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight, we are proud to welcome Jess Rowe to present his book, White Flights, Race, Fiction, and the American Imagination, a fascinating and acclaimed examination of whiteness in American fiction. Viet Tan Nguyen calls White Flights superb and adds, White Flights is required reading for white readers and white writers. The rest of us can learn something, too, about how whiteness is not just a privilege, a norm, and a benefit, but also a burden. Alexander Chi says of the book, these are brilliant, sweeping, intimate delights, and afterwards, you may never read the same way again. Jess Rowe is the author of the novel Your Face and Mine and the story collections The Train to Lowu and Nobody Ever Gets Lost. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in prestigious venues, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times Book Review, and he has received honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and an NEA Fellowship in Fiction. He lives in New York and teaches at the College of New Jersey. He's traveled a long way to visit us, so let's give him a warm welcome, Jess Rowe. Thank you so much. Mary, right? Yes, thank you so much, Mary. Uh, thank you to Skylight Books for, uh, for having me, and thank you to everybody for coming out. Um, not sure where I should put it over there. Um, so, I, you know, I, there are, this, uh, this is sort of a complex uh, book that goes in many different uh, directions, uh, many different ways of talking about whiteness, because whiteness is... Uh, has a sort of octopus-like quality of uh, reaching out in many directions and attaching itself to many different things. Um, but, I, you know, so I was thinking about um, many parts of this book deal with uh, Los Angeles in, in sort of glancing ways. Um, but I thought that I would just read a little bit about the L.A. riots because that was... Um, had a huge impact on my, on my life. I'm talking about the 1992... Uh, riots. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, this is this is I don't I don't I don't think this section needs needs that much um, introduction. It's part of, of the title essay of the book, which is called White Flights. Um, and uh, you know, also I've been talking with uh, with my friend Jonathan here uh, about uh, um, the problem of um, uh, the the way in which most of us experience like the problem with space most directly, which is how much we pay for our housing. Um, and of course, housing in the United States is very intimately tied to, um, uh, it's, it's the, the price of housing and what neighborhoods are desirable and not desirable is very much tied to the history of, of uh, racial violence um, in this country, which is, which is worth uh, reflecting on. Um, so that's what I'm. That's that's. This is the part that I uh, that I want to read. It contains an image, which sadly I, I wish I could project it. But anyway, I'll, it's a very familiar image if you were around for the 1992 uh, riots or uprising. Um, so I'll, I'll just I'll try to, you know, illustrate it when it comes to that point. Um, like my mother, who vividly remembers and repeats the story of seeing National Guard troops on her block in Adams Morgan in Washington D.C. in 1968. Many white Americans of a certain age have a proxemic story about the riots. I heard many of these stories growing up. They became for me a fundamental part of the white American narrative, even before, even before 
the so-called riots of my own time in Los Angeles, Crown Heights, and elsewhere in the early 1990s. These stories, not so much as I heard them, but as I sensed them, listening for the underlying logic are expulsion stories. They have a before and an after. They mark the end of an era, which of course maps the general disillusionment of American culture in the late 1960s, the idea of the war coming home, but they almost always position the teller, the observer, as an innocent, if not precisely a victim, as a helpless person who has no option but to flee. In the novel Middlesex, which traces a Greek family expelled from Turkey, first to Detroit, and then after the Detroit uprising of 1968, to Gross Point, Jeffrey Eugenides captures this mood through the eyes of his intersex narrator, Callie, who was then a small child watching her father's restaurant burning. Quote, as I look up at the canopy of elms, the sky is just beginning to grow light. Birds move through among the branches and squirrels too. A kite is stuck up in one tree. Over a limb of another, someone's tennis shoes dangle with the laces knotted. Directly below these sneakers, I see a street sign. It's full of bullet holes, but I manage to read it, Pingree. All of a sudden, I recognize where I am. There is value meets and New Yorker clothes. I'm so happy to see them for a moment that for a moment I don't register that both places are on fire. Letting the tanks get away, I ride up a driveway and stop behind a tree. I get off my bike and peek across the street at the diner. At that moment, the figure that has been approaching the zebra room enters my field of vision. From 30 yards away, I see him lift a bottle in his hand. These are traumatic memories. They represent a collective trauma passed on to me and millions of other white Americans too young to experience them. And part of the trauma is a crisis of self-knowledge, understanding that the racial stratification of the cities was inherently structurally unjust, being trapped in a structure you can't defend. Here's Callie listening to her elders. No respect for private property whatsoever, cried Mr. Benz, who lived next door, and his wife Phyllis, where are they going to live if they burn down their own neighborhood? Only Aunt Zoe seemed to sympathize. I don't know. If I was walking down the street and there was a mink coat just sitting there, I might take it. Zoe, Father Mike was shocked. That's stealing. Oh, what isn't when you come right down to it? This whole country is stolen. For my generation, born after the riots of the 1960s, there was an isolated but very significant echo of this historical trauma during the Los Angeles riots after the Rodney King verdict in 1992, the televised beating of Reginald Denny, a white truck driver who was pulled from his cab at the intersection of Florence and Normandy, struck with a brick and beaten nearly to death by four black men. The attack was filmed by a news helicopter and broadcast on repeat, becoming the most dominant TV footage of the riot. So I have it, I have it in the book, but um, if you're old enough, you probably remember this, this, this picture, this image. Um, the nature of this image is crucial to the way the viewer understands it. Unlike Callie's street-level view of the Detroit riots, this is a shot taken from the air. Neither the photographer nor the viewer has to be nearby or even in Los Angeles to witness it. There is no view of the surrounding neighborhood or any sense of whether the incident is isolated or widely repeated. In every sense, it's a post-white flight image, a satellite image, not just in the sense of being taken from space, but being taken from, a, being taken from a satellite of the city from the point of view of those who have already left. 
When I saw this footage in 1992, I had just come from a multiracial rally protesting the King verdict at the Baltimore Armory off Mount Royal Avenue. I drove back to my house and turned on the news in my parents' bedroom. The event seemed momentarily to wipe out anything else. I cried witnessing it, not as it happened, of course, but as a video loop, a short clip repeated over and over. The story of Reginald Denny's beating is not metonymically the story of the LA riots. The story of the 1992 riots is not the story of the Watts riots in 1968. The story of riots is not the story of white flight. But in the white American imagination, this chain of substitutions overwhelms the actual narrative at every turn. The actual narrative, to the extent I can compress it here, goes something like this. The flight in white flight, the dramatic movement of the white population out of cities and into suburbs and exurbs, and the economic hollowing out of what came to be called the inner city was not a spontaneous event or even largely a matter of personal or specific community choice. It was the result of American urban planning and housing policies dating back to the end of the Civil War when large numbers of black people became able for the first time and only for a brief time to choose where they lived. The, the image of African-Americans moving in an unrestricted way, spreading across the landscape, determining their own business arrangements, personal relationships, and spatial distances from whites was in a sense the guiding, the guiding phobia of white American civic life from that late 19th to the middle of the 20th century. This phobia made its way into housing covenants, urban planning, and federal housing administration policies, which demanded racial segregation throughout the country. After these explicitly racist policies were defeated one after another in the courts, resulting most notably in the passing of the Fair Housing Act in 1968, politicians, developers, lenders, and landlords evolved unofficial practices of discrimination such as redlining, which achieved virtually the same effect. As Ta-Nehisi Coates put it, in a vivid description of the history of segregation in Chicago, white homeowners had very little choice in whether or not their neighborhoods could be preserved. Quote, in 1947, after a few black veterans moved into the Fernwood section of Chicago, three nights of rioting broke out. Gangs of whites yanked blacks off streetcars and beat them. Two years later, when a union meeting attended by blacks in Englewood triggered rumors that a home was being sold to and blacks and whites thought to be sympathetic to them were beaten in the streets. In 1951, thousands of whites in Cicero, Illinois, attacked an apartment building that housed a single black family throwing bricks and firebombs through the windows and setting the apartment on fire. A Cook County grand jury declined to charge, to charge the rioters and instead indicted the family's NAACP attorney, the apartment's white owner, and the owner's attorney and rental agent, charging them with conspiracy to lower property values. Two years after that, whites picketed and planted explosives in South Deering to force blacks out. In a sense, the consistent objective of racial segregation as a nationwide government policy and popular movement was to maintain the economic conditions Americans still largely inhabit today, which social scientists often describe as invisible capital. The enormous interlocking network or feedback loop of social, cultural, and economic advantages that white people have possessed for generations, sometimes as a result of long vanished laws and practices, and sometimes as a result of present-day pervasive, though technically illegal, discrimination in mortgages, housing, preferential hiring, and credit. Invisible capital stays invisible because segregation, for the most part, either keeps its consequences hidden or makes them seem inevitable. 
The aim of the suburbs, writes Adrian Brown, co-editor of the anthology Race and Real Estate, was to make whiteness both a broader and less visible category, replacing racial language in its documents and decrees with a language of value and investment, better equipped to uphold the idea of racial segregation without its ugly rhetoric, whereas blackness in both the northern city and the southern, or the southern town was subject to internal segregation, the project of suburbia was to expel and export blackness from its borders. It's the very invisibility of invisible capital, making whiteness both a broader and less visible category, that makes spatial perceptions of race so difficult to articulate for white writers. To look at the story of white flight from the perspective of the real estate market means to see it as a kind of matrix where subtle or invisible forces overlap with visceral responses. It makes the political personal. Everyone, after all, has to live somewhere. To choose the most glaring example from my own life, when I was 14 years old and entering high school, my family moved from Phoenix, Arizona to Baltimore and rented a house, which was actually a claustrophobic and ugly house, which I immediately hated, in the neighborhood called Roland Park. My parents knew next to nothing about the cultural geography of North Baltimore. They chose a temporary location halfway between my mother's office and the private school my brother and I would attend. Roland Park, they were told, was a good neighborhood, in quotes. And of course, it looked like one. The streets were lined with old oaks and maples. The large houses had manicured lawns and were widely spaced. There was a tidy row of stores on Roland Avenue, a beautiful library, a brick elementary school. None of this was by accident. Roland Park was a planned community, one of the first American suburbs, developed in the late 19th century and designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, the creator of Central Park. In other ways too, as the reporter Antero Piatila put it in Not In My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped a Great American City, Roland Park was the foundational American suburb. Quote, because its development uniquely spanned the whole progressive era and also coincided with a peak in, natural interest in, in national interest in eugenics, he writes, Roland Park gauged changes in the American upper crust's attitudes and behavior, including shrinking social tolerance toward other races and religious groups. Edward Booten, Roland Park's developer, was a fervent believer in the pro progressive ideals of urban reform and also an avowed white supremacist who evicted black residents as the first homes were built and by 1910 had established a written company policy barring, quote, non-servant blacks from residency. He also used unwritten policies to exclude Jews and Catholics and as a result, in a city with a very large and prominent Jewish population, not a single Roland Park home belonged to a Jewish family for 50 years. It goes without saying, as so many things in Roland Park go without saying, that when we moved in in 1989, none of this history was visible. There's no historical marker on Roland Avenue attesting to the neighborhood's role in modeling the patterns of residential segregation that make up so much of America's spatial history. What was visible was the, land, the landscape itself, the silent psychic imprint of a landscape designed like Central Park to express solidity and security and permanence to feel like it had always been this way. But it was more seedier, it was also seedier, more ragged at the edges than it had been two decades before. Many of the houses, my friends' houses, had sagging porches, flaking paint, indifferent or overgrown landscaping. Roland Park had never been intended to be an exclusively wealthy neighborhood. Booten encouraged builders to offer many different house sizes and designs to its white residents. 
As Baltimore fell into economic decline in the 1970s and 80s, housing prices there stagnated. This is the Roland Park most people outside Baltimore know, not the actual neighborhood, but the backdrop of Ann Tyler's novels. Tyler has lived in Roland Park since the late 1960s, and most of her books are set there or in other nearby parts of Baltimore. In 2012, NPR ran a feature about the geography of Ann Tyler's Baltimore with an interactive map in which all the dots cluster together tightly around the city's northern perimeter, which is not to say that Tyler writes effusively or at any great length about the visual landscape of the neighborhood, let alone its most obvious features like the Roland Park Country Club or the private schools that line Roland Avenue and Charles Street. Ann Tyler's Baltimore is dominated by interiors. Her characters tend to be introverts, sometimes to great extremes, and their feelings about the city itself tend to be vague, passive, and self-effacing, subsumed by their personal quirks, their imperfect marriages or divorces, their unhappy, deprived, or unpleasant childhoods. In this sense, Ann Tyler is a deeply paradoxical writer, rooted in a place that is so comfortable, unthreatening, and familiar that it becomes almost featureless, a state of psychic stability that needs no explicit expression. There's probably no better exponent of this view than Macon Leary, the protagonist of The Accidental Tourist, who was played with terrifying inertness by William Hurt in the 1986 film made of the novel. Uh, the uh, Macon Leary writes guidebooks for American business travelers to help them experience as little as possible overseas. Macon himself might be called an accidental Baltimorean. He has what he calls geographic dyslexia and keeps a stack of index cards giving, giving detailed directions to the houses of his friends. But what's most striking and characteristic about Macon is his depressive visual imagination. Quote, he'd stand at the bedroom window looking over the neighborhood, black branches scrawled on a purple night sky, a glimmer of white clapboard here or there, occasionally a light. Macon always took comfort if he found a light. Someone else had trouble sleeping too, he assumed. He didn't like to consider any other possibility, a party, for instance, or a heart-to-heart -heart talk with old friends. What drives characters like these to abandon their sense of belonging, to subsume their cultural or political agency, or even awareness or curiosity, while maintaining a sense of the most extreme self-assurance that their world will never be significantly altered? I think the best way to answer this question is to use a wider lens and consider the convulsions that have gripped Baltimore in the five decades of Ann Tyler's career. The riots of the late 1960s, the economic collapse and emptying out of entire sectors of the city, the bankruptcy of Bethlehem Steel, the city's largest employer, the crack wars and soaring murder rates that have persisted from the early 1990s to the present. Ann Tyler's response to these events has been a silence so absolute that silence itself seems to be the wrong word. The proxemics of her work speaks, speaks for itself. Several years after I moved to Baltimore, when I was volunteering at a food pantry off Greenmount Avenue, an impoverished neighborhood only a few miles from Roland Park, the pantry director, a black man named James in his 40s who had lived in Baltimore his entire life other than his tours in Vietnam, told me when I was young, our name for Roland Park was Hanga N. My parents made sure that I knew never to go up there for any reason. I don't know the best way to describe this kind of geographic dyslexia. Should I call it one person's depressive normalcy superimposed on a silent guarantee of violence? Or a depressive normalcy that shrinks away from the violence that has always protected it? There is no historical record 
of a black person being murdered for straying into Roland Park during the years of legally enforced segregation. Of course, there doesn't have to be. In the early 20th century, the Baltimore African-American, Afro-American newspaper routinely reported that the police were shooing colored people out of neighborhoods where a majority of residents are white. The Afro-American also carried account after account of police killings of unarmed black men, a pattern echoed by the recent Justice Department report issued after the riots, quote unquote, following the 2015 police killing of Freddie Gray. In 1930, one headline read, Baptist minister says brutality surpasses anything South has seen. Here is a thought that has haunted me for years, years longer than I've been able to articulate it. How much of my own sensibility, the dimensions of my own emotional life, have been formed between the two poles or valences of violence I've just described? On the one side is the specter or spectacle of black violence that made cities in the 1960s and 70s, quote, uninhabitable, unquote, by white people. On the other is the very real, if rarely visible, threat of state and communal violence, white violence that kept people of color out of the places where I lived. Sometimes it seems to me that this is the hidden dimension, the secret code that reveals the whole spectrum of strange silences and absences in white American fiction since the 1970s, the fascination with empty landscapes and the fetishization of the West, the near obsessive interest in claustrophobic families, the cultivation of a stilted form of emotional intimacy that has defined the careers of so many writers from that era. There's a feeling here of existing within a narrow band, even a razor's edge of possibilities, but also literally places to exist, places where we can be happy, where we can thrive, but wherever that place is, it's haunted by the specter of a kind of inner vacancy. The house we expected to be full is empty. My eyes were still closed, says the narrator of Raymond Carver's Cathedral. I was in my house, I knew that, but I didn't feel like I was inside anything. This is usually taken as a universalizing gesture, but what would it mean to say the opposite, that the place, the space, more than the person, is speaking? I'll stop there. Thank you very much for listening. Any questions? Yes. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a great question. It's, I think it's one of the central questions of this book. Um, so uh, Toni Morrison wrote a book called uh, Playing in the Dark. It came out in the early 1990s. And it's a, it's a book about the ways that um, race is sort of unconsciously present in canonical works of white American fiction. Um, so she talks about Edgar Allan Poe, she talks about Hemingway, she talks about, you know, lots of very, Willa Cather, lots of very familiar, uh, names. And one thing that she says at the beginning of, of Playing in the Dark um, is very important for me and very important for, the, for my project here, which is, she says, um, I do this out of delight, not disappointment. So in other words, um, it's about, 
it's it's not about um, saying you know like these are the writers you should just like take off your shelves like forget about them. It's not you know I'm not saying you know cancel Ann Tyler, or cancel Raymond Carver, cancel Henry James. Um, I think you know, but I also think at the same time it's important to observe ourselves in the way that we enjoy and experience reading works of fiction. Um, because, you know, to me it seems like, you know, we're always, we're always relating to the writer's imagined world. And we can enjoy, we can admire or, you know, experience that imagined world and still understand how um, partial it is. You know, like the way that Virginia Woolf, um, who I, I dearly love, um, Virginia Woolf was a um, was a was a very um, she was a very classist person. She had very condescending attitudes towards servants, and this is uh, communicated in her work on you know superficial levels, but also very deep levels. Um, she really, really believed that there was um, a hierarchy, what W. H. Auden once called a hierarchy of consciousness, and that upper class people just had more of it. Um, and uh, you know, so that's so. So when I read Virginia Woolf, like those two aspects of my um, of my experience of her work are both there. You know. Mm. Mm. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure, sure. I mean, um, uh, you know, I think everybody has to make those judgments uh, judgments differently. But um, you, you know, you can you can really admire how a writer is groundbreaking and successful in one area, and in another area, very temperamentally conservative and restrictive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great way of putting it. Thank you. Other questions? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you. That's a great question. Um, you know, I wanted to, in the, in this book, you know, this is a book about, <clears throat> it's a book about fiction by a fiction writer. Um, so I wanted to um, not have it be dominated by sort of a conventional literary criticism uh, mode of, you know, treating the, the work of fiction and the writer as sort of an object to be analyzed. Um, you know, I wanted to write very subjectively about my own tastes and my own beliefs about fiction, my own experience of writing fiction. Um, but I also really, you know, I really wanted this book to be about my own <clears throat> white subjectivity and to be a kind of a, you know, I, call, I say at the beginning of the book, it's, um, it's a kind of white autoethnography. Um, and so 
in that sense, like what I'm looking for are the ways in which the um, fiction that I grew up reading and creating um, defined my uh, imaginative world, but also was very much affected by things like my experience of the riots, um, you know, which I experienced directly and then went on to inform, you know, the way that I thought about space, the way that I thought about, um, you know, sort of the possibilities of how I depict certain characters or certain landscapes. Does that make sense? You know, so it's sort of like this, um, you know, for me, I, I believe very deeply that um, our imaginative worlds and our, like our fantasy worlds and our actual worlds are very deeply intertwined. And there's some people who don't believe that, you know, who don't believe that at all, um, who, who, you know, just want to say like, our imaginative worlds are sort of over here and they're very marginal and separate. And actually what matters are material conditions or, you know, like political choices or things like that. I just, I, I'm, I'm a much more sort of synthetic uh, thinker in my belief that, um, you know, the, the novels and the movies and the uh, works of, you know, art and the music that we experience and carry around with us says so much about the rest of our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah. Other questions? You know, it's that that to me comes out of um, first of all just my experience of of reading so many writers like Raymond Carver um, at that you know at that time in the nineteen uh, early nineteen nineties when I started writing fiction, and you know I felt this very deep resonance with my own experience and the way that um, my parents my my parents were like they were never um, really comfortable in any house they ever owned. Like they weren't, they weren't, they didn't have like a good decorative sense and they didn't, you know, they didn't like, they didn't particularly embrace like material comfort of any kind. It was just, you know, they, they were professionals. They were, they were um, in, uh, you know, in, in non-empathic fields for the most part. And so they just kind of like threw it at the wall. It was like, well, we have to live somewhere and then they would make weird decisions, like they would buy like very gaudy flowered couches, and I could never understand why. So it was, you know, it was always, you know, for me there was just always a sense of feeling very awkward about, or they would buy like, you know, at one point like they would buy like very large houses with extra rooms. And it's like, why is that, why do we have extra rooms? Not guest rooms or like pool rooms, but just rooms with nothing in them. We just like left moving boxes in there. Or we would live in houses that just felt too small or cramped, and there was always the sense of like, what you know, what would it mean? I grew up with this feeling of like, what would it mean to really like enjoy living in a house and fully feeling like fully, um, like there's this, um, you know, like you want to have that feeling of like the house is like this environment that you're happy to come home to. I never really had that feeling. So um, when I read writers like Raymond Carver, I had this tremendous sense of recognition, the sense of like, these houses don't feel right. And why is that that like the house doesn't feel right? 
And to me, it, it has to do very much with a sense of um, not knowing what a sense of community is. Um, you know, not knowing, like, what does it mean to, like, live in a community with other human beings? What does it mean to, like, have a family? And, like, think about, like, what are the ways that, like, I want my family to be happy in my house? You know, and I think, to me, those are, like, those are, you know, those are such large cultural questions. You know, it was really, for me, it was the sense of, like, where did my parents, like, go so wrong? And to me, a lot of the answer was just, was whiteness. You know, it was, it was just their, it was their, um, it was their, the, the way that they had sort of abandoned any kind of cultural or familiar reference point and become these um, almost like anonymous white subjects in a way. You know, that's not a very fair description, but they're not here, so. You know, so that, you know, so, you know, so much of it came down to the sense of like, you know, who were they really? Like my mother, my mother's still at age almost 80, um, and having, you know, I'm married to a biracial woman. We have multiracial children. She still refers to white people as regular people. And, um, you know, and so like a lot of this was just like, what, is the, what does it mean? What does she really mean when she says regular people? You know, that's a lot of like what, you know, it's just the sense of like, you know, regular people to me is like the same as the empty house. You know, it's like you have to go into that sense of like that vacant definition that's not really a definition like, you know, this is what's normal. You have to inquire into that. Other questions? No, I don't think you can ever separate those things, you know, or gender either. Yeah, that's a really interesting, I love that question. Um, you know, one thing that I had never written about before and never intended to write about was my father's family who were, um, my, my father grew up in Deadwood, Deadwood, South Dakota, like the HBO show. Um, it's a real place, uh, not just a, not just a, a you know, it's a, it's a real place. It's a mining town that was uh, founded in part by my great-grandparents in the, in the late 19th century. Um, and it's a town, it's on stolen land. It's on land that be belongs to the Lakota Sioux by treaty, and, and it, was, uh, it was stolen. Uh, and the treaty, uh, the, you know, the treaty is still in effect. Uh, it was affirmed by the Supreme Court in 1980. Um, and my, my, uh, my father's family was, a, was one of the wealthiest families in, in Deadwood. And um, so I inherited some of that. I inherited some of that wealth, um, which comes from the comes from mostly from gold mining in in the Black Hills, um, and other thing you know, and other parts of the economic development of the Black Hills that are all you know because of gold mining. So um, the question of like, what do you do with this inherited wealth and privilege that comes from explicitly stolen? you know, circumstances um, was something that, you know, I really, I never, I never knew how to think through it because my father left the Black Hills at age 18 
and I only rarely ever went there as a kid, so I had effectively no relationship with it. And um, I, you know, it was just sort of like a joke to me, like, oh, my father grew up in Deadwood, like, ha, 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 isn't that funny? You know, does he have, like, six guns or whatever? And, um, and I, you know, and, I, and in some sense, like, I really, I, I wrote about it at multiple points in, in White Flights, and I still don't know how to talk about it because my father very consciously, and I don't really know why, he's no longer alive, I can't ask him, but he very consciously erased that part of his history. You know, he didn't talk about it very much. Um, you know, he became an a environmental scientist. He worked for the USDA in, uh, in Washington, D.C. That's where I lived most of my childhood. And um, we very rarely went back. And he didn't have that much of a relationship with his family. And so that was a kind of a, a racing of that very complicated and painful uh, white history. And I still don't know how to write about it because, you know, like a lot of, <clears throat> like a lot of white Americans, there's all of this complexity in my past that um, has been cut off by generations of forgetting and amnesia. Um, just I was talking to a friend the other day who said, uh, you know, my family on my mother's side comes from Ireland, um, but we have no idea where in Ireland, you know, not even the town, there's no sense. Of, of any of that, my parents never talked about it, you know, never said anything about it. So there you have that, like that, that history that has been very deliberately cut off and because it's cut off, it becomes sort of like secret history. And if you wanna unearth it, you have to do a lot of research and a lot of, but what you can't ever do is the kind of self-inquiry because you can't know what you don't know, you know, you can't know what you don't know. Like you can't, you know, if, if, uh, um, if your parents or grandparents uh, chose not to preserve some family memory, then there's no way to there's no way to really get it back. You can get like a little bit back through, you know, like archival research or whatever, but you can't really get the the feeling of it back. And you can't understand why did people make the choices they made. So that you know that was like you know something that I felt like I had to get into in this book, knowing that I could never really answer the questions, you know, the very basic questions because either the people aren't alive or they don't want to talk about it. Like a lot of my father's relatives in the Black Hills, you know, they just don't want to talk about it. Maybe one more question. Yeah, Jonathan. So this is what, what Jonathan is talking about is, is Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead and then the two novels Home and Lila that she wrote after it, which are really, really fascinating books. Um, 
where she where you know she talks about a town that was founded by abolitionists and then the town became so that's in the obviously around the 19, uh, 1850s, 1860s, 1840s to the 1860s. And then in the 20th century, a lot of those towns um, sort of forgot their abolitionist history and they became what are called sundown towns. Sundown towns are towns uh, in America where uh, black people um, can't be there after, sun or you know, if you're there after sundown, you're, um, you're, you're in great danger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, sundown towns are. There's a wonderful book called Sundown Towns that tells the story of these communities. So there's, you know, there's places like Glendale or um, you know lots of other neighborhoods where that's uh, you know colloquially understood. But then the the actual sundown towns, especially in the Midwest, had signs outside the town outside the town saying, um, you know, only white people allowed or people of color leave here by dark or something like that. Um, and the last of those signs went down only relatively recently, and probably some are going back up. You know, as as you know, I would imagine. Um, so, so Marilyn Robinson writes about. She writes a lot about the the abolitionist history of the town, and she only she preserves the mention of the sundown part until the last line of the novel. Um, and you know, she writes about it with great discomfort. The contemporary um, erasure of not only the abolitionist, abolitionist history, but the black population of the town that existed after after the Civil War, um, and now isn't there anymore. And so that's like a you know that's a very very common American story. And what fascinates me so much about about Marilyn Robinson's writing about it is how um, unwilling she seems to be to confront the more recent history. So she's she dwells a lot on the abolitionists and the sort of history of John Brown and all this stuff, and only very gingerly kind of tiptoes around the more recent stuff. Um, but yet she does it in a way that makes a very, you know, for a lot of readers, like a very satisfying and very spiritual novel. There's so much um, emptiness in her and so and sort of a positive vision of emptiness that she communicates in her writing, which really speaks to a lot of uh, readers, um, overwhelmingly white readers, but you know readers of all kinds. But you know, so it's it's this sort of you know transmutation of uh, a silence about a historical subject into this very sort of beautiful spiritual prose, which is really you know it's very interesting to me. It's a kind of gentrification of the mind or a kind of a um, like a, I don't know, like sort of a yogic principle or something, you know, a kind of like aesthetic whitewashing. Um, but it's very interesting, you know. Again, you can look at it, like I was saying a minute ago, you can look at it as both like very artistically impressive and yet um, very flawed, you know, at the same time. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, if you want me to sign books, I'll be up here. There are books for sale. Somewhere, I think at the front. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that deserves a more robust round of applause. That was wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.